Truth Espresso, Episode 70. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso, to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. <sighs> this is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Well, hello, this is Daniel Minnick, your host for Truth Espresso. Welcome. We are continuing a series talking about political alarmism. In a series of topics talking about economics and politics, we started a series on particularly the idea of overpopulation and the history of that. And that topic actually started, I didn't originally have that topic planned, but my wife showed me a picture of a billboard from a campaign starting in Canada. It's leaking into the United States also, but it is by a group of of overpopulation alarmists. And this One Planet, One Child campaign was trying to pitch the idea, at least from the start, of voluntarily limiting childbirth to one child per family. Of course, they're perfectly fine with no children either, but no more than one child. And so I figured that it was time to address this because overpopulation has been a topic, especially in the 1960s and 70s that a lot of people feared. So in the last few episodes, we looked at that. We looked at Dr. Paul Ehrlich, the biologist who wrote the book, The Population Bomb, that really got a lot of people worried that the earth was going to be destroyed or that we would see mass starvation, hundreds of millions of people, from the effects that there would be too many people competing for too few resources that, just like Thomas Malthus, the first one in recent history from the late 1700s, wrote about that the idea that population growth grows faster than food production and that, therefore, the cycle would continue of population growth, then starvation and people die off, and then you have population growth again, and then people would die of starvation again, and that the only way to prevent that unfortunate cycle would be for people voluntarily to try to postpone having children, live celibate lives, and otherwise try to reduce the number of children that people were having, enough of the large families. And then Paul Ehrlich kind of pushed that agenda to the extreme in the 1960s and 70s, and he promoted the idea of adding things to water that would sterilize parents so that they wouldn't have children, and that they would do other draconian measures to save people from themselves. Because, you know, the elites in government, the scientists and the politicians, they know best, and they could see the big picture that us simple minded rubes 
just trying to work hard and feed our families. You know, we don't know what the big picture looks like. And so what may be best for us as individuals or families might be harming the nation or the world, the big picture. And so you need a society controlled by the elites, the scientists and politicians who could see what's really going on and make the changes and control people and do the right thing to save us all ignorant rubes from ourselves. And so the last few episodes, we looked at overpopulation with Dr. Paul Ehrlich and how he made multiple predictions that actually did not come true because if they did, most of us wouldn't be alive. And we saw that Paul Ehrlich was still trying to make predictions of overpopulation in the 21st century, although I think he's lost a little bit of credibility, but people still give him a soapbox. People still interview him as an expert. And we saw that the overpopulation myth continues with um, even popular movies like The Avengers, and the evil supervillain Thanos was trying to save the universe by eliminating half of all life at random. So he didn't target a particular half of all life that he believed was making things worse for the other half. No, it was a good thing to destroy half of all life at random to save things for the other half. And so that's pure overpopulation mythology. So we see that there are still adherents today, even though the rate of population growth is declining. The last episode before this one, we looked at a model of population growth that is based on collecting data and observing trends from various nations and how you start off with high births and high deaths while in poverty. And then as things progress, as technology improves, as industrial industrialization happens, you have still high births, but death rates decline because of improved uh, living standards, and that increases the population. Population spikes, but then as living standards continue to improve, where there are more career options, people start to postpone families naturally to get settled and make sure they have a steady income, make sure they have their career options set first, and then plan out a family later on. And so that's all perfectly fine in a a society that has been industrialized and technologified, if that's a word, (laughs) where technology improves our lives. And so what drove people hundreds of years ago to have children some of it, you know, to have many children was the expectation that some of them wouldn't be able to survive. And so they needed enough children to survive (laughs) and to do some of the work. And that's, you know, that's a necessity at that time. But, you know, that's an unfortunate drive to have children. And it's perfectly okay that now that people are free from technology, they don't have to have lots of children. All I'm trying to say is there's room for people who want to have lots of children to have lots of children. And there's room for people who don't want to have children not to have children. Our living standards allow for this. All I would like to say is don't kill children. Don't have abortions. If you don't want children, you don't have them and kill them. 
That's all I'm going to say. You know, just if you don't want children, practice celibacy. Otherwise, you live with the results of your actions. And as a Christian, according to the Bible, we recognize that God's truth values human life. And so, if there is a child, you value that child. You don't treat that child as a number. You don't treat that child as a carbon footprint. You treat that child as a valuable human life made in the image of God. And so, we deal with overpopulation in the last few episodes. So, if you're just tuning in to this episode, although the topic, the discussion, the subject matter that we're going to look at in this episode can stand on its own for sure, but it kind of comes off of overpopulation alarmism and really how people have criticized overpopulation, the ideas of that, because the fangs of the original scare decades ago have been broken. There are not as many adherents to pure overpopulation. But that doesn't mean we're out of the woods of the technocrats and the politicians and the elites and the experts and the scientists who want to control society from the top down. If one myth goes away, another myth is going to come up because there are always people who think that they have the right to be in charge and rule other people. And so, as we look at criticisms of overpopulation, this episode is going to direct our attention toward the idea of income inequality. That's the next crisis that we're going to deal with. So, let's say goodbye to overpopulation and say hello to income inequality alarmism. So, there are people on the political left who now denounce overpopulation because they believe it is too simplistic, it is too naive, it doesn't really see the actual problem going on. It's not just more mouths to feed. It's not just that there are more human beings fighting for fewer resources. What they see in population growth is not just pure population growth, but how wealth is distributed. The income inequality alarmists believe that if we don't equalize wealth or try to make sure that everyone is earning equal or as close to equal as we can get income, that is what is going to destroy the population or the earth itself. That's what's going to lead to mass starvation. Because we're not giving people their fair share. We're not taking from the rich to give to the poor. And the idea is that pretty much everyone who has wealth either has it dishonestly or it's their duty to relinquish a large share of that, whether voluntarily or not, to social programs that try to even out the seesaw of wealth. And that as people get wealthier, it somehow robs other people of their ability to earn wealth. That somehow the economy is like this big pie. It's set in stone. It's a zero-sum game. And then people who actually earn wealth are stealing it from other people who would have otherwise earned it if it wasn't grabbed first by selfish, wealthy people. 
But that is not the case, I will tell you, because the economy, as we observed over hundreds of years with industrialization and the increase of technology that we have learned to use resources more efficiently, we're able to increase living standards for the entire economy. We're able to discover more resources. Yes, the world has finite resources, but we're able to figure out with investments and advances in technology that there are ways to abandon older resources, figure out newer resources, and even figure out ways to be much more efficient so we can have higher living standards without consuming as much resources in our planet. But, of course, the income inequality alarmists believe that we're going to destroy the earth or destroy humanity unless we have the benevolent dictators at the top to try to distribute the wealth so that everyone somehow sees their wealth grow slowly as an economy progresses. And so overconsumption is part of this idea of income inequality. The idea is that wealthy people overconsume. They consume too many resources, and therefore they are hoarding them and stealing them from poorer people who should have them more available. And so these people who promote income inequality will say that the overpopulation alarmists overlooked the idea of overconsumption. It's not merely the number of humans. It is the inequality of humans. So the wealthy really destroy the economy. The wealthy cause the poor people to starve. And so mass starvation isn't just too many people. It's that the wealthy steal it from the poor. But let's look at two particular claims about how income inequality destroys the earth. The first claim is that income inequality harms the environment. And yes, today we see a lot of alarmism Ever since there was overpopulation in the 1970s, that myth, that was tied to environment. But now the environmentalists also want to push income inequality. They want to replace pure overpopulation with income inequality and say that that is the culprit for harming the environment. So let's look at a particular article that makes the claim that income inequality isn't just a matter of unfairness, it's a matter of destruction to the environment. I'm going to read a few little short excerpts from an article entitled, Why We Should Be Wary of Blaming Overpopulation for the Climate Crisis. And the contributor is Heather Albero of Nottingham Trent University. And this article was from earlier this year, actually before um, the COVID-19 stuff really took off in the United States. This was January 28th of 2020. And this article is from theconversation.com, and I will add a link to the show notes for this article. Ms. Albero criticizes Paul Ehrlich and company, the overpopulation alarmists, in this article and says that it's a quote, dangerous distraction, unquote. So overpopulation, in her mind, is a distraction from the real issue. 
So, of course, I would agree with her that overpopulation should be discarded, but of course not for the reasons that she wants to promote. So, Ms. Albero says in this article, quote, More importantly, focusing on human numbers obscures the true driver of many of our ecological woes, that is, the waste and inequality generated by modern capitalism and its focus on endless growth and profit accumulation, unquote. So, Ms. Albero is not against the idea of population growth, thank goodness. But she believes that population growth should be coupled with population wealth redistribution. And that the environment is harmed because wealthy people overconsume and they allegedly waste. And of course, you gotta blame modern so-called capitalism for everything, all woes, the environment, harming the poor. And notice that she does say that it's generated by modern capitalism and its focus on endless growth and profit accumulation. So, she does admit that so-called modern capitalism does grow the economy, but she seems to think that the economy is growing too fast, and of course, coupling growth with profit accumulation means that the economy is only growing in a lopsided way. You know, the wealthy are making out like bandits, constantly focusing on profit accumulation, constantly looking for more money. And that somehow being billionaires is just not enough for them. They gotta be trillionaires. They've got to just keep on making more money. And supposedly they're, you know, sitting on all this wealth, all this money under their mattresses, and we just gotta dole it out to poor people. But of course, it's not as if wealthy people just burn trees and. <laughs> you know, like they they create factories that like how exactly are wealthy people just over consuming while the poor in the United States are not? I mean, who has a smartphone? Raise your hand. Not that I could see them, of course, <laughs> but poor people are buying things from the wealthy that improve their lives. It's like, how in the world do you think that these wealthy people, these business owners, these profit seekers, these evil profiteers, are actually gaining wealth? They have to sell things. And who buys the things that they sell? Well, poor people and middle class people, people normally who are not as wealthy as the wealthy people. And so <laughs> it's not as if wealthy people create a million cell phones so that the wealthy people can use and hoard all the cell phones and use a million smartphones for themselves. That doesn't make any sense. The wealth generated by the wealthy people, the higher standards of living, does go to poor and middle class people. Sure, wealthy people take a portion of it, but they generate far more wealth in standard of living and improvements than they actually keep and consume themselves. <laughs> they improve the lives of many more people 
many poor and middle-class people with their services and products than they actually consume themselves. So, really, shouldn't we tell a bunch of the poor and middle-class people to stop using smartphones and stop using the internet and stop buying things from Amazon because they're the ones who are contributing to the wealthy. The wealthy depend on people buying things from them. And so, shouldn't we really tell the poor people stop being suckers and buying things, making these people wealthier, and then we'd all be better off, right? I hope you can see the problem. I hope you could see where we would be heading with that kind of proposal. Next from the article, quote, Inequalities in power, wealth, and access to resources, not mere numbers, are key drivers of environmental degradation. The consumption of the world's wealthiest 10% produces up to 50% of the planet's consumption-based CO2 emissions, while the poorest half of humanity contributes only 10%, unquote. So, I'm not going to criticize Ms. Albero's statistics there. I just want us to think about what this all means. It's as if the wealthiest people emit all that CO2 by riding in private airplanes. Now, private airplanes make up a tiny fraction of aircraft. <laughs> like, most of that emissions, even if they're owned by wealthier people, such as the airline companies, the people, the CEOs of them, a lot of that <laughs> isn't even possible unless poor and middle class people are flying in airplanes and making use of the resources. And so, <laughs> Ms. Albero does not understand at all that wealthy people are not themselves personally consuming all that in a vacuum. So, how exactly do wealthy people consume things? Let's think of this. First, they produce things people want to buy, as I said before. Second, they hire people to work for them. So, the reason poor and middle-class people have jobs that can pay them a steady income is that wealthier people with more capital than they have, than they have, are able to invest, take risks, and package up various tasks in the form of jobs. It's not as if wealthy people just consume by digging an excessive share of food and treasure from a mountainside. I mean, where would they get this stuff and what would they do with all of it? They consume what is already available on the market, produced by other people, whether they're wealthy or middle class or poor. The wealthy people's consumption also aids in keeping other people from being poorer than they really are. Now, how does this work, Daniel? How does wealthy people consuming things <laughs> make other people richer? That's ridiculous. No, let's, let's consider how this works and how the economy is like an intricate woven tapestry. When wealthy people invest and hire... This pays other people their living that otherwise would not be available. Okay, so this is when wealthy people take their money and they invest in enterprises or they hire, they add to the job pool. 
Now also consider when wealthy people spend some of the profits that they earn that they don't invest into the business, but if they spend some of these profits for themselves personally, yeah, boo hiss, right? Well, they spend some of these profits on luxuries and travel. This also, of course, pays other people their living. And don't think that luxurious hotels or getaways are staffed by nothing but wealthy people. No, wealthy people hire people poorer and middle-class people. They offer jobs in leisure activities and luxuries. And so, when wealthy people then spend some of their profits personally, they're also paying to employ other people to work in other sectors. And so, as wealthy people spend their money, it hires people, it gives people jobs, it pays their salaries and paychecks. And when wealthy people invest in businesses and hire, that also provides jobs and paychecks in other sectors. As I said, you've got to understand the economy is an intricate woven tapestry and there is no consumption in a vacuum. The wealthy people don't just consume out of the ether and take away from poorer people. Their consumption pays salaries and their investments pay salaries. And poor and middle class people benefit from this. When wealthy people save some of their money in a bank, this provides capital as loans to other investors. Remember, banks, I don't like fractional reserve banking, but I'll give it this. When wealthy people put their money in a bank, this provides more liquidity. It provides more capital for that bank to make more loans to other ventures who can then grow or take risks. And so that improves the economy. Remember, it's not as if the economy is some zero-sum game and that wealthier people beat others to the punch and suck up more than their share of resources. Wealthy people, if they are legitimately and honestly wealthy, have earned their wealth by under-consuming themselves relative to the way poor and middle-class people might be consuming relative to their own wealth. Wealthy people are always helping out other people with their investments and their spending. Remember what I said in the last episode, that people who get wealth in a free market do so precisely because they under-consume relative to their output. This means that the honestly wealthy produce so that others can enjoy more total consumption than the wealthy people themselves consume. Now, I fully admit, I fully recognize that we don't have a truly free market in the United States or any country really in the world. And I recognize that corporatism exists. So all of you lefties out there who are going to point the finger and say, this corporation has done this bad thing and has gotten special privileges from the government, 
I agree 100% and I am against all of that. I believe in a truly pure free market where there are no special granted privileges from the government and that there should be no lobbying because really the Constitution doesn't allow that. So all of that that happens is in spite of the Constitution or in spite of the freedom we're supposed to have, not because of it. There are large companies that lobby governments using their money to get special privileges. But is this really a problem of the wealth itself intrinsically? Or is it the fact that politicians can be bribed and break their oath of office? Perhaps we should put the blame where it belongs. Maybe we should blame politicians for being bought, not people with wealth offering that. Yes, it's evil on both sides, but the problem really is the state, because the state has the guns, the state has the pen of the law, the state has the police force. It's not having wealth that's the problem. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil, in which people, if politicians grant special privileges, that's ill-gotten gain. That's tyranny, not when you have mutual exchanges on the market of people buying products and services that in turn makes the business wealthy. That's freedom. But when you have companies buying politicians with their money and politicians actually go along with it illegally, that is always the problem. That is where we must always put the blame. The blame is always coercion. It is always the state. The problem isn't voluntary exchange or wealth or inequality. It is the existence of a corrupt state mechanism that can make the will of anyone coercive over the wills of others. Now, another quote from the article, so that I don't exhaust the previous quotes. Ms. Albero says, Quote, issues of ecological and social justice cannot be separated from one another. Unquote. Ah, there's that term again, social justice, that ambiguous and subjective term that can never, ever, ever be satisfied. The only way to satisfy so-called social justice is to force everyone to have the exact same wealth. If there is any inequality, there will always be social justice warriors blaming any existing imperfections and problems on whatever inequality there is that may still remain. So just think about it. How really could we achieve a growing economy with some kind of income inequality that would actually satisfy the policy wonks. How could we actually achieve that? How minuscule, how tyrannical, how controlling, how, how much data would we need? I mean, <laughs> there's just no satisfying social justice warriors, and I think that's what drives them, because they're always going to have a reason to complain about something. Continuing from the article, quote, The problem is extreme inequality. 
the excessive consumption of the world's ultra-rich and a system that prioritizes profits over social and ecological well-being. This is where we should be devoting our attention, unquote. Let me say this. It is simply impossible to force complete equality of wealth without an insane amount of resources necessary just to police that outcome. And complete equality can only happen when everyone is utterly destitute and impoverished. Remember that wealth produced in a free market is a result of underconsumption leading to greater efficiency. The author of this article benefits immensely from things that she takes for granted, but she criticizes. Think about this. All the technology used to make it easy for Ms. Albero to write and publish this article digitally was produced by wealthy people with capital who invested it to grow more wealth. And so this is how Ms. Albero believes that inequality harms the environment because somehow wealthy people are contributing to a large carbon footprint or consuming way too many resources on the earth. But of course, she doesn't understand how the economy is an interconnected, interwoven tapestry, and that if you try to force a redistribution of wealth from these wealthy people, you will end up squandering resources, because you will give it to people who will overconsume if they're not entrepreneurially minded, you will end up dissipating some of the wealth. You will end up with more overconsumption and less wealth and more poverty. But now let's move on to another concept that income inequality will destroy humanity. So we just looked at income inequality as destroying the planet, harming the environment. But now we're going to look at the idea that income inequality kills people. So let's look at an article entitled Inequality Kills, simply contributed by a Stephen Bezruchka. I hope I pronounced that correctly. This was on April 2nd, 2014. So this is a few years ago, but income inequality is just as much a rage now, if not more than it was then. So let's look at this article, Income Inequality, from thebostonreview.net. From Mr. Bezruchka, quote, A recent Harvard study estimated that about one death in three in this country results from our very high income inequality. Inequality kills through structural violence. There is no smoking gun with this form of violence, which simply produces a lethally large social and economic gap between rich and poor, unquote. Oh yeah, let's use the word violence for things that have nothing to do with actually harming people. You know, because if someone happens to become wealthy by successfully creating a product and selling it and meeting needs and making happy customers whose lives have improved since the product has been made available, it's violence that if that person also doesn't relinquish the profits from that endeavor. 
or its violence if anyone opposes a scheme of government to force them to have to pay something that otherwise is not currently required. So, as much as enterprises or people or investors or wealthy people live within the law, they're still committing violence if they're not going along with a program that's not yet required <laughs> to yield up some of the profits that they make. So, you know, you have criminals before you have the law, right? And of course, you have violence that is like 10 times indirectly removed from an actual commission of violence. So today, it seems like we are being forced to redefine terms like violence and rape and racism and gender. Because, you know, people making threats and burning down businesses and looting and even punching old people and shooting people is not violence, it's peaceful protesting. But mutual exchanges on the market, where the differences of people and skills and talents and efforts happen to lead some people being more wealthy or more successful than others, and thereby being able to afford certain types of health care more than others, you know, that's violence. It's a systemic violence. You know, everything is always about the system, system, system. And so, you can redefine terms by adding the adjective systemic. But let's look at this. Let's look at the average life expectancy and how it has grown relative to the growth of income inequality over time. When the average life expectancy in 1800 was 40 years of age, but that jumped significantly because of the Industrial Revolution and increased productivity and capitalism to 70 years of age by 1950. And of course, it's grown up since then. But just trying to let you know, before we've had all this socialism and the war on poverty and Lyndon B. Johnson and all that stuff like that, Life expectancy grew from an average of 40 years in 1800 to 70 years by 1950. The fact that some happened to have it better than others based on their overall contributions to productivity means that they're allegedly committing systemic violence against others who aren't as fortunate, of course. But is that really what happened? Let's look at a report from Statista.com, statistics report entitled Life Expectancy in the United States, 1860 to 2020. So, I want to take a small chunk of that just to get our wheels spinning, just to get us really thinking about things. From 1860 to 1900, the average life expectancy climbed a whole decade from an average of 39.41 years to 48.19 years. And it actually exceeded 50. It was 50.06 by the year 1905, just five years later. Remember, this is the average life expectancy of the nation, counting head for head. Now, remember all this, the 1% and the 99% that people talk about. Well, there are more wealthy people today per capita than there were at this time. So think, 
The wealthy people from 1860 to 1900 made up a very minuscule number of the population. Poorer people make up the vast number of the population, even more so at this time. This means that poorer people benefited from the innovations and investments of the wealthy. Now, this period largely reflects the time between the Civil War and before the Federal Reserve was set up in 1913. This was a period where there was a lot of industrialization and we didn't have a central bank because the Federal Reserve was created in 1913. We didn't have an income tax yet. We didn't have Social Security. We didn't have Obamacare. Now, I'm not trying to argue correlation proves causation. Obviously, what I'm trying to say is that life expectancy grew tremendously during that time when we didn't even have those things. The question I am raising about those who cry foul that there is so much injustice with less regulations and no government-controlled universal health care is that this kind of improvement can happen without all that government-controlled stuff. It is simply freedom, responsibility, risk, and reward that is the engine for improvement. And when innovations happen, naturally, they start off more expensive before they're able to be mass-produced and created more efficiently. Let's think of how wealth trickles down. Wealthy people who've acquired their wealth, honestly, that's what I'm talking about. Wealthy people use some of their money to invest in these endeavors. If they succeed through trial and error in the free market, they improve the lives of customers and sellers. New products start with wealthier customers to buy the inventory at the earlier necessary higher prices. If sales happen to be profitable, then some of the profits go into investing in more capital equipment to sell more of the products. This usually leads to lower prices as the cost of production then becomes cheaper and thinner sales margins are compensated through higher volume sales. So as you're able to churn out more products and lower the cost, that means the profit margin that you make per unit goes lower, but you make up the difference in volume sales. Simply, the sellers can make the profits either by selling to fewer customers at higher prices or to many customers at lower prices. But to sell it at lower prices profitably, you have to start with higher prices until those who can afford to buy those expensive products capitalize the seller more to invest in more efficient ways to sell the products at lower prices and get more customers. This is how an economy grows. Obviously, this is a win-win situation if there are no special legal privileges granted that stifle free competition. Everyone's lives are improved from poor to middle class to rich. But this only happens when freedom is allowed, and freedom naturally leads to inequality at the same time that it improves the lives of those even at the bottom. And so, does income inequality lead to the destruction of the environment? I don't think so. Does income inequality literally kill people? 
only if you redefine language. But we can see how life expectancy has grown in the United States even before you had all these regulations because of industrialization, improvement, efficiency, wealthy people investing, getting products out to market, improving the lives of everyone, lifting everyone up. And now, of course, since this is truth espresso, we look at things from a Christian perspective. What does the Bible have to say about income inequality? Proverbs 22 verse 2 says, The rich and poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. And so, there will always be rich people and there will always be poor people in relative terms, because today's poor people are exceptionally wealthy compared to the rich people of hundreds of years ago. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 7-8, through 8, the Apostle Paul says, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou had not received it? Now ye are full, now ye are rich, ye have reigned as kings without us, and I would to God ye did reign, that we might also reign with you. So what is the Apostle Paul saying? He is saying that God actually makes people to differ from one another. God is the one who designed us. God gives some people talents, different talents, than other people. Some people are able to become wealthy based on the brain that they have or the physical prowess that they have compared to other people. And Paul's emphasis here is that we are all rich in Christ. And remember, we as Christians, we understand whether we're rich or poor, we will reign with Christ on the new earth and we will all be rich in that economy. And so the Christian attitude Yes, we must take care of the poor, but we don't force income equality. That is destructive. That results in everyone being poor. We are to meet needs that are legitimate needs, but we are not to have a central planned economy that forces people to give to things to equalize wealth. Now, let's look at the parable of the talents from Jesus in Matthew chapter 25 and verses 14 through 19. Now, if ever there was income inequality, we have it here. Yes, I know the parable is that a man gives investment to his servants, expecting them to yield the man growth. But he gave one five talents. He gave another two talents and he gave another one. Why did he do this? Why didn't he just give them all the same? Well, it seems that he trusted that the ones he gave more to, he gave them more because he understood their personality, understood that they would likely be more responsible. And so he entrusted the third guy with only one talent and the one who got five produced another five. The one who got two produced another two. They were rewarded. And the one who had the one talent feared and he hid the talent in the dirt. And so when he returned that talent, the master got angry and he even told him, you could have at least put it in the bank to get interest on it. 
So there was punishment for not growing wealth here. It wasn't just consumption. It was creating wealth. And notice that he took the talent, the one talent from the unprofitable servant, and gave it to the one who had ten, not the one who had two and produced another two. The one who had the five and produced another five. He realized this is the person who is able to produce and be efficient with resources. So he gave that one talent to the one who had the most. So there is a lot in the Bible about taking care of the poor. But there is also recognition of honestly acquired wealth. And that wealthy people should take care of the poor. But you will not see anything in the Bible that supports the idea of a forced central planning scheme to try to level out incomes and try to promote income equality. And of course, there's also no concept that somehow income inequality leads to death of people or leads to the destruction of the environment. Now, we're not done with income inequality here in Truth Espresso. So, the next episode, we're going to talk about income inequality, just some of the other claims about it that don't have to do with alarmism, because there are people who will just try to whine that it's not fair and that true fairness and justice is all about forcing income inequality. And I think we can have a little bit of fun with that, so stay tuned. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 